0: brought to you by Lifetree at JesusCenteredLife.com. Welcome back to our series in October about the supernatural. Can you make a scary sound when I say that, Becky?
1: I don't think I know any scary sounds because I don't watch scary movies. That
0: is shocking (laughs) that Becky knows no (laughs) scary sounds. I
1: almost was like, I was going to make one, but I was like, actually, I think that's the Mm. Batman. Ooh. Yeah, it's okay, like that. Like See, there.
0: okay. Now I've given Becky one scary sound she can use. I not watch
1: scary <laughs> movies ever. At
0: some point, yeah, they don't actually make that sound in the contemporary scary movies. Either. I
1: feel like I literally close my eyes as tight as I can all through October because everywhere is spooky stuff, and I just I can't I hate you, Halloween. You know,
0: I'm in a neighborhood that has its own like a private Facebook page where they post stuff to sell and messages to each other and stuff. It's it's you probably have one of these services in your area. It's called Nextdoor. Uh, I get these notices sometimes. I don't know why some things come to my email box and some don't, but one came to my email box that intrigued me, so I opened it. It was a mother asking if anyone in the neighborhood had a copy of Friday the 13th because her young daughter wants to have a scary movie night. I'm like, do you know what's in that movie? <laughs> is that is that the sort of fear <laughs> you want to see? Yeah, I'm not, a, I'm not a horror movie fan, but I do know what scary sounds sound like. They sound like, ooh, like that. So if you missed last week, we kind of uh, laid the groundwork for the whole month by doing a whole podcast on what what is the supernatural anyway. So if you missed that, go back and check out episode 38. Now, this one is 40, because it, between this one and 38, we're going to releasing episode 39 as sort of a special little 15-minute bonus which is a, an interview that I did with a woman who, out of the blue, bought 2,000 copies of our Jesus-Centered Bible for her church. So I had to contact her and find out what's going on there. What are you doing? <laughs> and her story is fascinating, and what she has to say about why she did that, and what she's doing in her church with these Bibles is fascinating. So we're releasing that as a special bonus episode, that's number 39. But today, because, you know, the end of October is, of course, Halloween, we are reminded that uh, when we talk about the supernatural, there is a dark side to it, and we just kind of joked about it a little bit with these scary movies, and we have to close our eyes in them, but there's an actual dark side to the supernatural, too, not just the movie version that we see, Uh, and we, we go to see movies like that, according to psychologists, because they help us to sort of out our fears and sort of practice responding to our fears without having to actually face the fear that we're watching. So we, we sort of out our real, our real fears by watching fake fears. I, I hope that makes sense. But Jesus treated the reality of these dark, supernatural forces around us as expected and normal. He didn't read about them in Harry Potter, he confronted them on almost a daily basis in his life. He thought it was important to model for his disciples the way to relate to supernatural realities in our life, especially when the source was evil and not good. Um, I, my close friend Bob Krulish always used to say this just, I, I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but it always still arrests me whenever I think about it, because he actually naturally did this sometimes in in normal conversation. He'd just stop and say, hey, Rick, how's your relationship with Satan today? And he said it with a straight face. He wasn't joking, he, w- he really wanted to know. And the first time he did it, I said, I kind of stammered, and I laughed a little bit uh, uncomfortably, and I said, well, what do you mean exactly? I've never had anybody ask me that. And he said, well, all of us have a relationship with Satan. We, you know, we go through our day influenced by the supernatural reality that there is an enemy of God in the world And Jesus made it perfectly clear over and over again that this enemy is real, and not just part of our imagination. So the supernatural is, by definition, something unusual. So what makes for, you know, bad unusual and good unusual? So today what what we're going to do is uh, sort of unmask these dark supernatural forces, kind of the way in the movie The Wizard of Oz, Toto pulls back the curtain. On this frightened old man behind the curtain who's pulling all these levers and projecting himself as this fierce and terrible wizard, but Toto pulls back the curtain and reveals that he's really not any of the ways that he's trying to portray himself. We're gonna, we're gonna do that with the dark supernatural forces that surround us in life, and we're gonna do it by paying attention to Jesus, and how he interacted with these forces, and what we can learn from him, and there's also this other dark side to the supernatural that we don't actually often talk about, because some of us have had some bad experiences with things that are supernatural or with people who sort of traffic in the supernatural. We've had our own painful stories, and in fact, it's a, interesting that Becky and I have very similar stories of painful encounters with the supernatural when it was done in a very um, inappropriate an immature way. Becky, why don't you tell your story, and then I'll tell mine.
1: Well, I, my husband and I go to a church that's um, a little more on the charismatic side, and I intentionally wanted to go to a church that was a little bit more on the charismatic side, just because I'm a more of a studier by nature, and so I wanted to have that. But one time, we were, they had a guest speaker who came, and he decided that for the entire hour and a half that he um commanded the stage that he was going to walk around and just speak prophetic words over people. And on that particular Sunday, I had brought a friend with me who had never been to this church before. So,
0: oh happy day.
1: We're sitting there and he's walking around the room and literally my in my head I'm like, "Don't come over here. Don't come over here. Stay away. Do not come over here." And and literally he's walking up to people and, you know, there was this couple, this, this was like by far the worst one that I was just like, this is not okay. He walks up to the couple and he looks at the husband and he's like, you know what you're doing wrong in your marriage. You know what it is and you need to, you need to address it with your wife today. <laughs> and then he walked away and it was just like, that was the most shameful, humiliating thing I have ever seen in a church service. Um, it was just, it was gruesome. My husband, I think, was, like, we kept having this, like, under-our-breath conversation, like, should we just get up and leave? Hmm. Or if we got up and leave, would that look weird? Like, we 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 were debating for the whole time. Would he come after you then so and,
0: and, and reveal your secret <laughs> Oh, saying. my
1: gosh, we just, we did not, we did not want to be there. It was really horrible. You
0: know, what's embedded in that story, and this is why I resonate with that story so much, is... There's a violation that happens in the midst of that story. You can say, oh, uh, this person is taking a risk in faith to try to help and convict someone. I'm sure that's what he was thinking. But we know when you hear this story that there's some kind of violation.
1: Because there was no permission.
0: Yeah, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, My story, similar, when I was in college, I had a rough first year of college, and I had some people reach out to me who really befriended me and welcomed me at a time when I really needed it, and they went to this small charismatic church in my college town. I'd never had any experience with a charismatic church. And uh, I think I mentioned before that the whole idea of going to a charismatic church uh, frightened me uh, because of the length of their of their sermons and the length of the worship service in general and the atmos- the sort of charged atmosphere of weirdness that happens sometimes in charismatic churches. But I liked these people, so I went to their church. And I really did thrive there for the year or two that I went to that church, because these people actually believed that Jesus said and did things in our everyday life. And but I had I had been there going there for about a year and a half, two years, when one Sunday I, I went alone. There weren't my friends weren't there. And so I just sat alone. And on that particular Sunday, the pastor was away. So they had somebody else sort of guest preaching that day. And it's typical it was typical to see kind of crazy stuff happen in the service, but on this day there was a couple of women. Who are kind of standing by the side of the church, and they were sort of just staring at people in the congregation. And I thought, well, I wonder what that's about. And uh, about halfway through the service, one of these women came and sat down in the empty seat next to mine, and I thought, okay, and she leans over and whispers and says, I know why you're here, and you had better leave soon, because we are on to you and we know why you're here. And I'm like, what did she say? You're like, why <laughs> what, am I what? here? What, what was that?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I know why I'm here. <laughs>
0: so I, I just innocently looked over her and I said, I don't understand what you're saying. So she leaned back over and she said, I know you're a representative of the enemy. And I'm here to tell you to leave. And I'm like, uh, I don't know what you're talking about. And so she kind of looked frustrated and she left. And stood over at the side and whispered something to her friend, and I kind of I made it through the whole service because, like you, I thought, should I just get do up and leave? <laughs> <laughs> what do I do now? <laughs>
1: if you go, it might make you look guilty, yeah, like they were right, right. like oh yeah, <laughs> the
0: enemy. We've expulsed the enemy. But I think what had happened is simply, uh, I was a college kid. I wasn't, uh, you know, part of a, a family. The families were mostly what came to that church. And those two women just weren't familiar with me, and so that morning they felt that the Spirit of God had told them that there was going to be enemies in the flock, wolves in the midst of the flock, and that they were supposed to find them and out them and tell them to get out. So because they had never seen me before, they made this assumption that I must be one of these wolves, and it was, it was literally, I, I remember I was trying to understand emotionally what this experience was like. For me, it was like spiritual rape it was like somebody violating my boundaries in a profound way and i couldn't shake the feeling of this experience so i did eventually go meet with the pastor once he had come back from his trip and i told him about the whole experience and he apologized profusely and essentially what he said was i need to talk to those women because they they handled this extremely immaturely and and he was very understanding of how this how this could be destructive in me but in the end, I just couldn't keep going to that church. This experience was so jolting that I had to stop going to the church.
1: Did you question, like, well, maybe I am
0: working yes. with the enemy? I, well, I, I did on some kind of level. Like, maybe like, I,
1: th- I thought this whole time I was following Jesus, yeah. but I'm not.
0: Yeah, because there's this power when somebody says, I have a word for you, or I have spiritual, supernatural insight into something. And because we are basically insecure people, all of us are— the fact that somebody might say something to you that's a bald-faced lie, but say that I have some spiritual knowledge, does get some traction in us. We, so I remember feeling like I did ask that question, like, oh, did they see something else in me? What's wrong with me? Mm-hmm. But in the end, when I went to go visit the pastor, I had come to this place where I, I had said inside, they were wrong, and they were wrong to do this, and this was something that should never happen to someone else. So, I need to talk to the pastor about this. So, but there, you're right, Becky, that, that it does kind of throw off your balance a little bit because we're all, we're, none of us are so arrogant that we simply not believe there's anything going on there. We just kind of consider it first. So, it's important for us to pay attention to how Jesus related to supernatural forces in the world and how he handled that kind of stuff with people. And how he coached his disciples to handle that kind of stuff with other people. And out of that, what we're going to do in the second part of the podcast today is uh, Becky and I are going to focus on a very pragmatic list of red flags related to supernatural experiences that are embedded in the way Jesus related to supernatural stuff. So you know, Becky and I are just like you, we don't like weird stuff either. (laughs) In fact, weird stuff can be very violating, as I just described. The truth is that the supernatural threads its way into our natural world all the time in the biblical accounts of everyday life. So if we're going to acknowledge the realities of the supernatural world, we need to be more intentional in our relationship with the forces that are at work around us. So these I've mentioned that we see these kind of consistent patterns, In Jesus when we slow down and pay attention to the way he interacts with the supernatural. Let's just jump right in to some of these right off the bat. The first one is when Jesus encountered Satan in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4.
1: When we were talking about, you know, what stories would we want to use, our friend Steph was with us, and she's like, well, obviously the time that Jesus talked to Satan. (laughs) <laughs> oh, yeah, there's that one. <laughs> He's like the most evil in the supernatural realm, and he was talking to him.
0: <laughs> yeah. And this, what's interesting about this, and we're just going to go through a few of these stories. We're not going to read all the way through them. We're just going to kind of capsulize them and talk a little bit about some of the common threads that run through these stories in, in Jesus encountering these dark supernatural forces. So, of course, Jesus was at the end of a fast, a 40 day and 40 night fast. He was hungry, thirsty, physically weak, and at that time it says that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So this was like part of a rite of passage for Jesus, that he was purposefully led, when he was weak, into the wilderness for the purpose of being tempted by the devil. And there's three or four encounters Jesus has with Satan, That are interesting to take a peek at. Let's look at the first one. Satan first says, "'Hey, if you're the Son of God, Jesus, tell these stones to become loaves of bread.'" So if we just stop there for just a second, what is Satan tempting Jesus to do? We have to slow down and pay attention to what's actually going on here. He's saying, if you have the power of God, then you could, you know, do a party trick and make these stones into bread. And Jesus replies, no, the scriptures say, people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Jesus is resisting, he's not taking the bait, he's basically saying, he's not saying, I can't make that stone into a a loaf of bread, he's saying, "Uh, we don't live by bread alone, we live by the words of God, and that's what I'm going to focus on now, not your words. Later on, Satan takes him to the highest point of the temple, we don't know how he did that, but he takes him to the the highest point in the temple and says, just jump off, because the Scriptures say that the angels will catch you, they'll protect you. And Jesus responds and says, well, the Scriptures also say you don't test the Lord your God. There's no reason for me to jump off the temple, I don't have to prove anything. And then it says Satan took him to the peak of a high mountain and told him that he'd give him all of this land and all of this power if he'd just kneel down and worship him. So he's, he's, he's a sort of tapping into what he believes Jesus would be most tempted by, which is the power he needs to carry out his mission on the earth. He's trying to say, hey, I'll give you that power. I'll even give you all this land. I own this. I'm the ruler of the world. Let me give all this to you. And that's when Jesus basically says, okay, that's enough. So he says, get out of here, Satan, for the scriptures say you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. So he's he's basically said, that, that's enough. I'm not going to mess around with you anymore. So... Here, what what do you notice about this this story, real quick, Becky? What what do you notice about the way Jesus interacts with Satan in this story?
1: Well, he keeps trying to, to tempt him with physical needs, and that's often, you know, what is enticing. Especially when you are enticed to go to more, a more charismatic church, sometimes it's because you're having a lack in physical needs, like maybe you're having financial issues or health issues and so you're coming because you need some sort of supernatural healing. And so it's it's not uncommon for us to go to God and ask for these things and I think the way that Jesus is is responding to him is he keeps pushing it back and saying the physical needs are not are not the most important thing in the kingdom. That's why are you, why do you keep going back to that? That's actually not the most important thing. We're supposed to live by the word of God, we're supposed to live by um, the commandments, we're supposed to live by this essence of God that lives in us, not by the things that are physical. And I also, you know, I think that tempting Jesus with power, I like that Jesus was so like, get away. <laughs> you know I don't actually care about that. I, I already know what's more valuable, um, and it's not all of the stuff that you just listed off of here. That's he, good. He wasn't yeah. really, he was just like, y- you're missing the point.
0: Yeah, and we know that he's awake and aware of the agenda that Satan has in tempting him. So he outs that agenda repeatedly. He basically looks behind what Satan is trying to say to him to understand what is motivating him to say this to me, and then he attacks that motivation. He's also quite relaxed, and we'll talk about this later as well. Jesus is quite relaxed in the way that he relates with Satan in this. He's not really wrapped up he's not panicking he's not s- sweating it out he's simply responding almost conversationally to these temptations and what satan is trying to get him to do so the next one we want to take a, a look at here is in mark chapter 5 when jesus heals the what is called in some bibles the gerasene demoniac this guy's gone down in history <laughs> as the gerasene demoniac it's a He was a man who lived in the region of the Gerasenes, and this man was possessed of an evil spirit, Scripture says, and he was so out of control that he scared everyone in that region. He lived in these caves near the shore of the lake, and they were not just any caves, they were burial caves. He lived in tombs, and people tried to put him in chains, and he always broke the chains. He had this kind of supernatural strength. He scared people. And so Jesus gets out of his boat innocently, and this guy comes running up to meet him. And it's just fascinating what happens when this demon-possessed man who scares everyone in the region comes up to meet Jesus. He bows, and then he screams, Why are you interfering with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In the name of God, I beg you, don't torture me! (laughs) Don't torture me! And a demon immediately recognizes who Jesus is, and says, what are, you, what are you doing here to bother me? I got a good thing going here. I got everyone freaked out. But Jesus had already said to the spirit in the man, come out of that man, you evil spirit. And he demanded to know what the spirit's name was. And the spirit spoke back to him, my name is Legion, because there are many of us inside this man. And so essentially what Jesus does is says, okay, let's see, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to expulse you from this man. And the demon goes, well, don't, don't destroy me don't destroy us. And Jesus essentially says, well, why would you assume I was going to do that? So there happened to be this kind of large herd of pigs milling around on the hillside nearby, and so the Spirit said, please just throw us into those pigs. And so Jesus gives them permission, and the evil spirit leaves the man and inhabits these pigs, and they promptly run over the cliff and drown, which makes the people that own the pigs pretty mad in the end. So in the end, this guy is freed from this demonic possession, and he's so grateful he just wants to follow Jesus. Um, He wants to follow along with him, and Jesus says, no, go home to your family. That's what I want you to do. So let's do the same thing with this one. What, What do we observe about the way Jesus relates with these dark supernatural forces in this story.
1: He's gracious towards them. He actually, you know, he listens to them. He, you know, gives an alternate option to being destroyed, and he says, all right, I'll graciously accept that, and he does it. And he—there was no, like, screaming. It's really more what wasn't there. Yeah. There was no screaming and shouting. There wasn't, like, an angry encounter between the two of them. He didn't have to, like— he didn't have any lightsabers. I feel like we could. There was no like sorcerer stone or like nothing. He just kind of had a conversation with them and in a no very horcruxes.
0: relaxed
1: way. Just said, "You have to leave this man alone. You got to go." And and then he. That was that.
0: Yeah, and embedded in that too is that Jesus is clearly not impressed by this show of supernatural scariness. Uh, he'd, I, he had heard about this guy. He could see what the guy was doing and what he looked like and where he lived. He was not impressed with any of this. It does not like, oh my gosh, I've got a hard one on my hands here.
1: <laughs> oh my gosh, there's many of them. This is going to be an all out battle. <laughs> We're going to be here all night, people.
0: That, yeah, <laughs> there, there, was, there was none of that. He, he just is not that impressed with this show of force at all. Uh, it's interesting. Let's go to Mark Nine where here's an interesting story about the disciples encountering a man who is using Jesus' name but not actually following Jesus, and they have, a, I think, a real question, like, hey, uh, is this okay, Jesus? So let me just read to you, this one I'll read a little portion of it instead of just condense it. So John said to Jesus, "'Teacher, we saw someone using your name to cast out demons.'" Okay, so just get into the shoes of John, They saw somebody literally expulsing demons from somebody, using the name of Jesus like it was an incantation, somebody who doesn't really know Jesus but thought that maybe the name of Jesus had power, so he was using it to expulse these demons. So John says, but we told him to stop because he wasn't in our group. (laughs) We told him, no, you can't do that, you're not part of us. And then Jesus' response is is animated. He says, no, don't, don't stop him. No one who performs a miracle in my name will soon be able to speak evil of me. Anyone who's not against us is for us. So if anyone even gives you a cup of water because you belong to the Messiah, I tell you the truth, that person will surely be rewarded. And then he says an interesting thing, right on the heels of this, But if you cause one of these little ones who trusts in me to fall into sin, it'd be better for you to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone hung around your neck. And he goes on about other things that would be better for you than if you caused one of these little like ones to stumble. cutting off your yeah limbs yeah that's that's not good
1: it's kind of a weird passage
0: yeah but it, it is a weird passage in the sense that you would expect uh, kind of on the front end Jesus might say hey that guy's that guy he's not with us so he's just using my name like like it's a magic word that's not good but instead Jesus says he's if he's not against us, He's for us, and if he's using my name and experiencing the power of my name, it won't be long before he has uh, friendly feelings toward me. Like, he, he'll come to love me.
1: <clears throat> and he'll have an undeniable understanding of, of his power. You know, I mean, wow, look at what I'm experiencing. This man must be the Son of God. Because it's working, and I don't have any power, I know it.
0: But then he adds this little P.S. right after that, which I think, you know, Becky, you pointed out the other day when we were talking about this, that I think is fascinating. He's saying, even though that's true, he better not cause you or he better not cause any of these little ones to stumble by using my name or using the power of who I am. That is not going to go well for you. So he's just not he's not open-ended about all this. He has boundaries around around this, but he's saying hey, if this guy is working for us, setting captives free, then don't stop him. However, (laughs) don't screw up. Don't use this power in an inappropriate way to damage or hurt people, because then I'm going to come down on you like a load of bricks. So it's interesting even thinking about that relative to our stories. The reason I went back and talked to the pastor of the church is because I felt like those women needed to be held accountable There needed to be some weight dropped down on their shoulders about what they had done so that they wouldn't continue to do that. Um, It's not okay with Jesus that people use supernatural power or claim to in very immature and irresponsible ways. So let's do um, just a couple more, and then we'll transition here. The next one is with the disciples, it's from Acts chapter 8, and it's uh, this encounter with Simon the Magician. This is in Acts chapter 8, it's in verses 9 through 24, and we're just going to summarize this. So the disciples run across a a man named Simon, who was a self-described magician. Philip is out healing people and preaching the gospel, and they see this guy, Simon, who'd been a sorcerer, and he he's he so powerful, and I don't know if he had If he was an illusionist, or he actually had supernatural power that did not emanate from God. But this man was so extraordinary that people called him the Great One, the power of God. He was like the David Blaine of his his time. People just couldn't figure out how he could do these powerful things. And this guy, Simon, uh, happens to see Philip healing people and casting out demons, and he goes, oh my gosh, (laughs) how is that guy doing that? And he gets fascinated by how Philip is doing this, and then he listens to Philip talk about the kingdom of God and how Jesus came to sacrifice himself and pay for our sins so that we could have a relationship with God again, and as a result, Simon comes to Jesus. He commits his life to Jesus. But later on, Simon's kind of hanging around with the disciples now, he's just fascinated with what they're doing, and he thinks... How can I get the power that they have? So he goes, let me have this power too, so that I may lay hands on my people, and they will receive the Holy Spirit. And he he offers the disciples some money to buy this power, and then Peter just goes ballistic on this guy and says, your money is going to die with you, buddy. Your heart is not right. You have bitterness and envy in your heart, and you're going to be destroyed because of this. And Simon goes, oh no, (laughs) please don't let any of this happen to me, please pray for me. So here's this story of a guy using power, uh, obviously supernatural power, and he gets fascinated, wants to buy it, kind of use money to gain this kind of power so that he can do even greater things than he has been doing, and Peter just comes down on him. So what did you notice in that one, Becky?
1: Well, I think... It's interesting because there's a couple of things, you know, obviously Simon came to Jesus. They make that clear. Like he he, he said, I'm going to follow Jesus with my life. But then they hadn't received the Holy Spirit, which is a, a separate, usually mentioned as a separate event. But it's interesting to me that he immediately wanted to buy it. And part of that is probably because it was his it was his trade. That's how he had been making money. And so he's like, I could probably make more money if I had this. But just also... Peter's response is just so harsh against Simon. I kind of I don't know. I have a little bit of sympathy for Simon cuz I could see this heart that's like I want to follow Jesus, but he's just confused. He just seems really confused about all of this and maybe it's cuz it's his job is wrapped up in supernatural stuff and so he's not quite sure. But then I I love that at the end his heart is no, I don't want that to happen to me. Please help yeah. me, you know. And
0: I think part of this what you're saying too is that it's important for us to consider the foundation for which you're pursuing something like this. Peter was angry because this supernatural power was not a, you know, whoa, look at us kind of thing. They were very pragmatic and on point. We're here to set captives free because that's the mission Jesus has given us. You have a totally different set of motivations, buddy, and this is not gonna go well for you because this is real power, we're not playing around, and in a sense, this sharp rebuke is helping to set a new boundary in this guy's life. Here's a guy that's had no boundaries relative to faith in Jesus containing this interest in the supernatural, and Peter's just set one for him in a very visceral way that this guy's not going to forget. So he's trying to say, hey, th- th- this is, it's important what your motivation is, so um, I'm going to remind you to Consider your motivation before you keep doing this. The last one I wanted to just take a quick look at here is actually not an encounter with a supernatural force, but I think it it has great value in helping helping us to understand Jesus's point of view relative to dealing with the supernatural. And it's in Matthew eight five through thirteen. It's this encounter Jesus has with the centurion or a Roman officer. And this Roman officer comes to Jesus and says he has a servant who's lying in bed, who's paralyzed and in terrible pain, and he's begging Jesus to heal his beloved servant. And Jesus at first says, well, I'll come. Of course I will. I'll come and and heal him. And the officer says, I'm not worthy for you to come into my house. All you have to do is say the word, and I know my servant will be healed, because I'm a man who understands authority. So I get it, Jesus. You don't even have to come. You just say the word. And Jesus, (laughs) I just love this, it says in verse 10, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed. So it is possible to amaze Jesus, and this guy did. And the reason he's amazed, Jesus goes on to explain to his disciples, is that, hey, this guy understands what's happening in the unseen world, in the supernatural world. He understands that authority rules in this world, and because of his position as a Roman officer, he understands how authority works. I tell this guy, go there, and he does. So he, he saw Jesus for who he really is, and he thought it was possible for Jesus to just simply speak out a word of healing, and that power would go across across the vast distance between Jesus and his servant, and that servant would be immediately healed. This is what Jesus was amazed by. He was essentially saying, hey, this guy gets it. How did he get it? (laughs) That's amazing that he really understood how things work in the Kingdom of God. They work by authority, and so does our relationship with all things supernatural, particularly the dark side of the supernatural. I had this experience, I interviewed a counselor for a a book I wrote a while back called Shrewd, and this counselor uh, was a normal, everyday, conventional counselor who also had had some special training about dealing with demonic kind of influences and obsessions in people. So, he had a kind of a clientele of people that sometimes had demonic issues in their life. And he had gone through a great deal of special training on how to respond to people like this. And so, I wanted to talk to him to see how he did this. And what startled me in him as he was telling me stories of how he encountered people was how utterly relaxed and calm and almost like an accountant this guy approached these things there's nothing theatrical about this and we'll talk about that uh, a little bit uh, in a little bit as well but he was calm and relaxed about this guy about uh, about the people that he met he would calmly sometimes he would calmly ask okay demonic presence what's your name and if the demonic presence didn't want to answer he just persisted oh no i'm saying what's your name and the way he always ended these encounters, which has always stuck with me and took me by surprise, is he would say in the end, when he was speaking directly to these demonic presences, he would say directly to that presence, okay, now you need to go where Jesus tells you to go. You have no choice, just, I'm giving you over to Jesus, you need to go where he tells you to go. Even in that, he was gracious. He didn't scream and thrash and, be gone, get out of this man! He just simply said, I'm handing you over to Jesus— you need to go where he tells you to go, because you you live under authority. So I've had experiences like this in listening to people who operate in this realm, where they model the same way that Jesus interacted with these dark forces. So we're going to shift now into some basic ground rules for dealing with the supernatural, and we've come up with some, some red flags that we think are important to think about so why don't you why don't you take the first one there, Becky? Is there an environment where permission was given? You mentioned this before.
1: Yeah, I think this is really important. And and to clarify, permission isn't just they showed up at a church service or a small group at your house. I think even in those environments, we can assume, oh, I must have permission to tell these people whatever I want. But in an environment where someone's giving permission, maybe they came and they asked for your um, for a prayer or they asked for a word or advice from you maybe someone approached you before they told you what they should and they asked for permission to share it like even if you know and we want to encourage people to to freely listen to Jesus and sometimes he tells you I want you to talk to this person but you can still go up to them and say hey I have something for you do I have permission to share it with you
0: and like in our stories there was no permission given there was
1: no permission and
0: that is a red flag if that's an environment where people are simply launching these, these uh, kind of supernatural gifts, if you want to call it that, without permission given first. That's not the way Jesus operates. He does not violate boundaries. If you study the way that he interacts with people through the filter of permission, you discover he's always inviting people to put their own skin in the game with whatever he's doing. And he goes to extraordinary links to, to this, uh, you know, a couple examples of there's the man by the pool of Bethesda, this pool is a place for crippled and ill people to um, hang out so that when the waters are stirred, they can jump in and be the first one, and the first one in gets healed. Kind of a crazy, crazy tradition, but one thing everybody knows is that if you're by the Pool of Bethesda, you want to be healed. And Jesus sees this man who's been there for 38 years, and the first question he asked him is, do you want to be healed? Do you hear the permission in that? Jesus already knows he wants to be, but he wants the man to say so, and when the man says so, there is an important open door there. It's like Jesus waiting for us to open our door to him rather than him kicking it down. So if you're in an environment where people are kicking down doors, that is a red flag, and it's something that Jesus doesn't do. You can look at it any, any story you want. The woman by the, the woman at the well, he asked for permission to uh, kind of entwine himself in, his, in her life. The woman who touched his clothes on the street has touched the hem of his garment. He first stops and asks, who who did that? Who did that? And when she outs herself, that's permission for him to engage her. Or when he put mud on the eyes of the man born blind from birth, and he smears mud on the man's face and then says, go to the Pool of Siloam and wash. The permission in that story is the man saying, yes, I will.
1: That's such a great example, too. The last thing we wanted to say about this is that, Even if permission was given, the person still gets to decide whether or not it's for them. And in that case, the disciples brought that man to Jesus. He put the mud on his eyes. He could have said, okay, now I put this mud on your eyes and you're healed. But he gave him the option of going down and washing it off, and and he gave he gave permission back. If you want this, then you can do it. Right. Um, and so just because somebody came to you and asked for advice, don't force it down their throat. That's not how Jesus operated. In fact,
0: when I pray for people, um, and I pray kind of in a, de- a spirit-dependent way, I always say to them, here's, here's what I have for you, but it's up to you to decide whether this is really for you or not. It's not up to me if this isn't for you, if this doesn't resonate with you, then just we'll smile and say, see you later. (laughs) You don't have to receive this. It's up to you to receive it. So the next one is, um, is this environment relaxed or is it theatrical? So uh, Becky and I have both mentioned already that if there's a lot of stuff going on, screaming and thrashing and shouting and stuff, that's a red flag. There's something that's contrary To what we see Jesus doing and how he behaves in these situations, or if there's things like there's pressure to to participate, or I have this story of when I was in a missionary training program overseas, I was in this uh, three month discipleship training school, and for most of that time, uh, we had students from like 18 different countries. There, we we had heard about this guy who was going to be coming to not only teach at one point, we had a a different teacher every week, but this guy was special. We heard. Because not only would he teach, but he would have individual appointments with each of us where he would sit looking at us and give us a word from God. And this became like this electric thing that everybody was looking forward to, and then it became this kind of romantic, spooky thing that we were standing on the stairs waiting for our turn to go in, and we went into this dark room, and it had a candle in there, and this guy gave us a word. And at the time, in my my own spirit, I thought, there's something wrong with this dynamic. There's something too theatrical about this, something too overblown, something almost too romantic about how this is being treated. You know, we, we worship Jesus, not his power, and that's an important distinction. We don't get overly impressed, like Simon the Magician was, with this power. That's what Peter was trying to say, hey, don't get too impressed with this power. If this is all about Jesus, it's not about the power. <laughs> so in that circumstance, I think that's what made me uncomfortable
1: even in really extreme circumstances, Jesus was still always very relaxed. So when he was you know, walking on water, calming the storm, he was just very relaxed about it. When he was talking to multiple demons, he was very relaxed. When he was talking to Satan, he was very relaxed. So we want to model how he dealt with the supernatural. And so he wasn't that impressed with the supernatural. And so we shouldn't be super impressed with it either.
0: Yeah, and the, the, the tension there is is that he obviously acknowledged the reality of the supernatural and was involved in it all the time. He treated it as an everyday reality, but he didn't treat it as like, ooh, that... This that. is
1: more important than me.
0: Yeah, it just was one aspect that was true about our reality that he dealt with all the time, and that's, that's the way he would like us to deal with it as well. The next one is, what is your motive? We talked about this a little bit. Are you chasing after power and prosperity, or are you seeking freedom? So this is an interesting one with relative to our motivations. We talked about this with Simon the Magician as well. Becky, you have some examples of this whole deal of, of motivation underneath the desire to use supernatural gifts or to have a supernatural thing happen to you.
1: I now know too much about gold dust falling from the sky in church services. Um, <laughs> what you can Google, the heck are you talking about? Go on YouTube and just Google it. But apparently people have had... Circumstances where there have been a worship service and gold dust has fallen from the, fl- the sky, um, there's people who have experienced times when they were praying really hard in a church service and they, a diamond showed up in their hand. People had manifestation of gold teeth. But I think the the main thing is, are, are we coming to experience the Holy Spirit because we're looking for prosperity in our own eyes? Um, And I would say to beware of that because Jesus, if, if you look back on the encounter with him and Satan, he was not interested in prosperity. He was not interested in our physical circumstances here. He was always pointing us back to the kingdom. He was always here for one purpose, and that was to unlock cages. Sometimes he didn't even heal the the physical circumstance, but he was after the heart. And so when we're going into these circumstances, we should always be looking to set captives free. And there's some good examples here. Rick, you want to share?
0: Yeah, there's the example of the rich young man. Who comes to Jesus and he wants to know what he has to do to to inherit eternal life, and Jesus has an immediate love for this guy and isolates the rich young man's uh, central motivation, what he's invested his life in, which is his riches. And so Jesus says, good, I know what to do with you, sell everything you have and come follow me, and give that stuff to the poor, give the money to the poor and come follow me, and the guy couldn't do it. So what is Jesus doing here? He's trying to isolate the man, he's trying to out-drag into the light the man's central motivation. Instead of it being in the dark, where it can't be dealt with, he's trying to get it in the light. And he had hopes for this guy, that if he did this, that the guy would have an honest conversation with Jesus, or have an honest change of heart, or have an honest repentance over where he had been investing his life, but the man walks away instead. So... You've already mentioned Jesus talking to Satan and talking to Simon the sorcerer. I think what we need to clarify here and make sure that people know is that, of course, it's fine. I do this all the time, to press into Jesus and ask him for help in always. the everyday realities of our life. Always. Where, whether we're sick, whether we have a financial need. Or what, you need
1: a parking spot.
0: Or you need a parking spot, because I've always maintained that if it matters to me, can I talk about it with him? Of course I can. I can he might say, I don't really." I, the inconvenience of not finding a parking spot is really what I want for you right now, Rick. <laughs> I'm trying to surface something to you, so I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not going to go that route. But the fact that we can talk to him about anything and ask him anything is a good thing. But we have to remember that Jesus is after two things at the same time. He is always and everywhere when he encounters people, not only listening to their felt need, but also seeing their underlying need, their interior need. So he, ad- he often addresses the exterior need while he's simultaneously addressing the interior need. This is why, for instance, he got into trouble when a man who was sick was brought to him, and Jesus saw him, and the Pharisees were right there watching this, and Jesus says, um, you know what, I forgive your sins. And the Pharisee's gut went ballistic, who do you think you are? And Jesus says, well, it's just as easy to forgive his sins as to heal his body, but just for the heck of it, I'll heal his body too. And he does that. So Jesus is there doing two things at once. He recognizes our need, the need we're aware of, but he also recognizes something else that's going on inside there. And sometimes when we come to him with our needs, he finds it more important to first address our interior need whatever that is, before he'll address the need that we brought to him. So this is a pattern that Jesus has, and it's because he loves us and wants to do the greatest good in our life. So we have uh, one more here that that's a red flag. Does the environment that you're in, this, where there's supernatural stuff happening, does it traffic in shame and humiliation and this is, this is one we've already kind of mentioned in both of our stories. There was shame and humiliation. That is a huge red flag. Huge red flag. Because that is not the smell of the Holy Spirit. Shame and humiliation have nothing to do with the Holy Spirit. So I wrote myself a note here about the difference between acting on a nudge or a conviction or an insight from the Spirit and it's simply an arrogant assumption. And I think what happened in my story with these two women is they made an arrogant assumption, instead of humbly responding to an insight from the Spirit or a conviction, just because they didn't recognize who I was doesn't make me a wolf. So they made this arrogant leap in their approach to me. So so that's what led to the shame and humiliation. Anything else that you want to say about that?
1: No, I think this is just a great way. I know a lot of, um, you know, we've been talking about this with the pigs and uh, they were sharing some really fun stories of their own supernatural experiences. Some of them even had said, I've never told anybody this before. Um, and so that was really fun. Um, but you know, a lot of, there was, you know, a few people that I, I just heard say, this is new for me. This is really pushing me to, to participate in this. And Um, You know, Rick and I totally understand why, because like we've said, we've experienced some pretty negative aspects of it. And I mean, we shared each one story, but we have multiple stories that we could share with you of dysfunctional environments. But what we want to encourage you is don't swing the pendulum the other direction, because when you participate in the supernatural with Jesus, you experience him in a more intimate way. And that can unlock Uh, It can unlock things in you that you didn't even know exist, and you could experience him in a whole different way. These boundaries are really so that you can go and participate in that environment and and know when when something has gone too far.
0: And in fact, in Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus the Pharisee, he tries to help Nicodemus, a very learned man, understand that he has two realities. He says to Nicodemus, you are born of the flesh of a woman, but when you come to me, you are also born of the Spirit— he's trying to say, you're a spiritual being, Nicodemus, and there are spiritual realities happening in your life. To ignore them is wrong. To not have a responsible attitude toward them that adheres to the model of Jesus is also wrong, and should be called out as weird. (laughs) Our boundaries are set by Jesus, always and everywhere. So just to recap some of the red flags that we've just raised here, just to, to, to recap those here at the end, we're always looking for environments that seek permission. We always act in a spirit of permission if we are praying for another person and depending upon the Spirit of Jesus to pray for them. We all ourselves have a spirit of permission about ourselves. If the person is resistant to what we're doing, then we don't do it. Otherwise, it's violating their boundaries. And we come with a relaxed and playful approach to all of this. We're not impressed with The supernatural power that's around us. We're playful. We're more playful than we are theatrical about it. We check our motives. Humility is a key with all this. We watch out for environments that seem infused with shame and humiliation. There's something going on wrong there. And we don't forget that Jesus doesn't want anyone marrying him for his money. I loved that addition by <laughs> the way. I thought that was
1: really fun. It just means that, you know, yeah, nobody and, wants to be married for their money. Right. And
0: <laughs> and, nobody, and Jesus doesn't want a relationship because of his of the stuff that he has. He wants to be known for his heart and and just like we would. So, and the the goal here for all of this, uh, anything that's supernatural that is of God, is that it's always oriented toward releasing us from our two captivities—our exterior captivity and our interior captivity. It's always oriented towards that. So people who experience the supernatural power of Jesus are naturally drawn to him, as Becky has said, that this is what—this is the magnet of how we actually experience the heart of Jesus, because we only can experience Jesus spiritually. He, He is not physically present to us. So the only way to really experience him is spiritually, so growing in our ability to live in the Spirit supernaturally is a good thing, because we'll come to know his heart even better. So here we are at the end. I just want to remind you again, we have a this special bonus episode of Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, a 15-minute episode that we're going to release, and, and I encourage you to listen to it. It's a fascinating story of how the Jesus-centered Bible is infecting and impacting a whole church, and why. So please do listen to that. And, you know, uh, uh, Becky mentioned The Pigs. You want to explain that again for those that think, what the heck is she talking Mm -hmm. about?
1: The Pigs is our private Facebook group where, for people who avidly listen to this podcast and um, to be in community, it's a place to go all in for Jesus. It's a real um, vibrant community where people are praying for each other and loving each other and supporting each other. And you can find out more about that. Hey, thanks so much for listening. Also remember that you can find out more information about the things that we talked about here today, but in further detail on the Life.com. Find our podcast section, and this is Season 2, Episode 40. This is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, a podcast from Lifetree. Subscribe to us on iTunes for the latest podcasts, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Bye.